We're continuing in Colossians 1, Paul's letter to this little insignificant church that used to be along a major trade route in the Lycus Valley, and now there's just a little church there that Paul cares about. And he cares about getting them this message in the midst of their trials and tribulations that Christ is in all and for all, and all glory is to him forever. He is the preeminent one. And their affections and their love should be turned to Christ, and their lives should reflect the beauty of Christ, even as Jesus Christ himself pours out his beauty and goodness upon them. Of course, this week I was praying for an illustration to, to start off the sermon, and as usual, the characters of Santa Fe have delivered. They never let me down. So as you know, Santa Fe is known for its, uh, its bumper stickers, aren't we? I mean, really, they're some of the best and worst bumper stickers you'll ever see in the city. But man, I saw one recently that, that had me laugh out loud in my car to such an extent, I would call it a cackle even, that I basically scared my entire family. And let me explain. We were driving up Surios on a Saturday afternoon. And on our left was a white Chevy truck. Newer model, single cab, clean, V8, lowered a little bit, not absurd, not obnoxious, just enough, springs, tint. The guy had obviously put a custom uh, sunroof in because it was sticking off by a foot and a half. The base is thumping, and you're like, well, what better thing is there to do on a Saturday than go cruising up Cerrios by yourself in your sweet truck? And that's when I noticed the sticker, one sticker on the whole truck. Greatest sticker I've ever seen. I need this sticker for myself. White letters on the back of the truck, blacked out tint, so maximum contrast, two words. Tengo novia. That means... I have a girlfriend. <laughs> Tengo novia. I have a girlfriend. And then when I got to look at this character, I'm thinking that is not this guy's problem at all to ward off the ladies. But man, I mean, just shameless, right? And it's not, this wasn't some kind of rhetorical question like, Tengo novia? Got milk? No, 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 ladies. Uh, if you're on Sirius on Saturday, cruising in the afternoon, beware. He's, he's letting you know. He's just letting you know that he's taken. All right, I know you see the truck. I know you can notice it's lowered and blacked out and hear the bass thumping, but ladies, he's taken. His love, his affection, his desire is already tied up in another beauty. Just thought, wow, the audacity of the guy in this truck, you know, whose head I could barely see, he was so low, to just let the world know, I know you love my truck, but I'm taken. And you know, Paul in Colossians is signaling uh, this same thing to us, but about Jesus. Be that guy, says Paul. Uh, th there's all kinds of people around you in the passing lane. Pressures are overcoming you, but be that guy. But with Jesus, secure and bold in your affections and your love for Christ, knowing who you are in Christ, fearless to declare it in public, and counting the cost even if some might laugh. You see, this little church in this insignificant part of the world is facing not so little and quite significant pressures. 
the kind of pressures that, that we face in our day and age. And there's not only cultural pressures and religious pressures on the church, which we will discuss, but on Paul himself. Remember, he's writing from prison. Some of you are in the last few chapters of your life. You've been considering the legacy you're going to leave for your children and your children's children to a thousand generations. And perhaps you're looking around the landscape of the world you now live in and you don't seem to recognize much of it. Or you're wondering, is this what it's going to be? Is this the end? Is this the end of my career and legacy? Paul finds himself in similar suit, in jail, in Rome, and unable to do the very thing he was made to do in his bones, travel the known world and talk about Jesus. We feel the pressures too, don't we, folks? Do I need to go through the laundry list of things going on in our world right now? No, I'll just start with this. As I was driving in this morning and taking a left from Paseo de Peralta onto Old Pecos Trail, there were flashing lights everywhere. And some of you have already seen what's happened around our Capitol building here. I'm not going to make any commentary on the moral valuation of that exercise except to say it just kind of hit me this morning on the drive-in. Whoa, what is going on? This doesn't feel right. This feels wrong and weird. The pressure is real outside of us and inside of us. So what are the main issues then that the church is facing? Because there are issues and they help bring into focus the realities of the fallen condition in which any little church needs to have its eyes lifted up to see Jesus. The first thing you need to understand is that the Colossians are surrounded by fickle, demanding gods. There's a whole context in Colossae about these local deities who basically do two things. They demand that you give, and then they take what you give. They demand that you give, and then they take what you give, and you better not do it wrong. Because if you do it wrong, a disaster could fall upon you, or your family, or your crops, or the city. Now, it's 2021 in the United States of America, and so we think we know something about private religion, but there was no such thing for the Colossians. Everyone knew everyone, and all of their worship was public. So imagine that these Christians are now saying Jesus is the way, defying the fickle gods of the pantheon of their region, and if anything goes wrong, who do you think is going to take the blame? So the pressure outside of the church to conform, to live a certain way, to choose a certain side was massive. To appease these gods whose will was unfortunately arbitrary and undiscernible. The second pressure we're told in our text is that this leads basically to alienation. It's the problem of the fall. It's the problem of the first man. It's my problem. It's your problem that we want to be our own God. That we believe the little whisper lie, did God really say? And we think, no, maybe we can make our own way. This leads to alienation, to separation from God and from one another. From the fall, from grace in the garden, and the scattering of Babel. And we know it well. Right? We don't come to church every Sunday to be, you know, happy, clappy, everything's great. And we dressed up. We also don't come to, you know whip ourselves on the back and, and beat ourselves up and life is doom and despair. No, there's a tension here. We're in the now of the coming of the kingdom of God. We're in the not yet of the difficulty of this world. We know alienation. I was talking to a friend the other night. 
You said, I'm lonely. And everyone I'm talking to is lonely. Are you feeling that right now at all? A little bit lonely? I mean, I am, and I'm still around way too many people all the time. Alone. We're not meant to live like this. Alienation we know well, and they knew it in the Colossian church. The Romans taught that you were to achieve this sort of platonic form of greatness, the epitome of the beautiful, the rational, the powerful. But the problem for us all is that although we can put that up as a smokescreen, we still possess mirrors, right? And we can still see ourselves in the mirror and know that no, no amount of trying hard to be better or do it right or pull ourselves up by our bootstraps is sufficient to overcome the alienation deep in our souls. The third temptation in the church is simply this, to, to turn to anything Jesus plus for help. And you may have missed it because it's embedded in the context of the Colossians themselves. It's why we read Hebrews 1 for our call to worship. But let me just draw your attention to verse 16. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. This isn't just a list of uh, the Roman stratification of government. It's actually uh, the belief of many in the ancient world, including many Jews, about the hierarchy of angels, which is why the author of Hebrews spends so much time as he's also writing to the scattered church in Asia Minor to say Jesus is superior to the angels. We don't turn to the angels and some extrinsic hierarchy apart from Christ for help. We don't turn to experiences or emotional highs. If we want to live our lives in Jesus, we need ongoing help that is bigger than that so that we don't fall back into a me-centered life. We need the very power of Christ himself for endurance. This all really boils down to a central question for the Colossians. All these pressures from without and within add up to a single question. Is Jesus enough? So, 2021 Christchurch Santa Fe American people, generally on this side of town, this parish. Here's our question. Is Jesus enough? Come what may in the years to come. Is Jesus enough? Now, how does Paul seek to answer this question? It's pretty amazing, actually. It's pretty startling, and it would have startled the original hearers. His emphatic yes to the question, is Jesus enough, turns Paul from his prayer, which is basically the first 14 verses of Colossians, to praise. From prayer, we pray for you that you would grow in the grace of God and give thanks to Jesus, to praise. Do you want answers to these pressures? You know, you hear a little like, what is it, David Bowie Queen in the background? Doom, 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 doom. Can it, you guys know that one, right? Doom, 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 doom. We could all do that right now. From prayer to praise. And so most scholars believe that verse 15 to 23 is basically one of the first Christian hymns. It's a worship song. Now, whether Paul wrote this hymn or quoted parts of it or all of it, we don't know. But what we know is this. Paul's saying to the Colossian church, you've got a lot of pressure on you. And there's one answer for that, to sing about Jesus. 
to sing about Jesus, to have your heads lifted up, not to all the circumstances of your own life, your own heart, your surroundings, your city, your country, your world, but to sing about Jesus. And as we'll see, for you and for me, to deal with the pressures around us right now, which are very real, we've got to sing these three things. You ready? We have to sing about his power, we have to sing about his purpose, and we have to sing about his persistence. Power, purpose, persistence. So Paul invites us then in verse 15 to sing about the power of God through Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I mean, the, the prose here is just beautiful. He holds all things together by the power of his word. I mean, this, in this day, they, you know, they understood the composition of human beings to essentially be the four elements. And a lot of you are scientists and physicians sitting out here. Think about what we know now. Every atom, every quirk, in this universe that's so much bigger than we could have ever imagined, held together by the power of the word of God spoken in Jesus Christ? So what does Paul do? He confronts the allure of these little gods who control us that we think we can control, because that's nice. That's a little dopamine. That's candy. That feels good for a minute. Ooh, I can have some control over my life. No, you can't. Paul confronts the allure of that, the temptation of that, with the glory of Christ. It's profuse. And the reason that Paul does this is precisely for what I just said. We get trapped into this misunderstanding that, that good and evil somehow are on equal plane. That life is somehow binary or dualistic in this sense. That, you know, it's yin and it's yang. God is powerful, yeah, but oh, all the bad stuff out there too. And hopefully, you know, if we do all the right things and pray hard enough and go to church, in the end, God will win. Now, you may not believe that, but that was exactly what the ancient world believed. In fact, if you read the ancient creation stories, Gilgamesh, Enuma Elish, the Hittite creation stories, they all trace back to this dualistic power of good and evil fighting, and in the chaos of the fight, creation emerges. Not in the biblical story. There's no fight. There's no beef. There's no one else even near the throne. We read about in Job, right? Even the devil himself has to come before God and submit and get on his knees and plead for permission to allow temptation. It's not a proper view of Jesus, and it ends up being slavery to us. As one scholar put it, and I love this, if it's just good versus evil, who's going to win? As opposed to Jesus is all in all, the creator and power of the universe then we are always beholden to the desires of the gods or our desires because the 21st century has put God inside, right? Your feelings, how you feel and what makes you happy, that's God. Always beholden and never held. Always beholden and never held. To the slavery of that, Paul contrasts that Jesus is. We see he is almost 10 times in this passage. It's sort of a power list resume of all the things that Jesus is and the power of creation. While the little gods catfight for crumbs, Jesus stands alone by himself, the sovereign king of the universe. 
And what that means for us, you guys, is that we are free. We are free from the yin and the yang, the binary, the dualism, the who's going to win. We're free to know that Jesus is on his throne, that he holds it all together. If he holds it all together, abstract third person, then he holds you all together. First person, personal. How does this happen? Paul says that Jesus reveals God. He's the image of God. Here we're drawn to the creation story itself. In Adam, all die. In our first parents, Adam and Eve, all die. Because we inherit the sinful nature of Adam and we ourselves sin. But Christ has come as the image of God perfectly. He's the second Adam. He is the one who will overcome the curse, keep God's covenant, and provide a way for us to be adopted into the family of God and return to the garden. He's the firstborn among the dead. Doesn't mean that Christ was born or begotten. What's being discussed here is this ancient Near Eastern concept of the rights of the firstborn son. Not only is Jesus the second Adam who can keep covenant, but he is the firstborn son who has all the rights to do so and then bestow that inheritance upon a people so deeply in need. God speaks and Jesus is the word of God. Paul perhaps is drawing us to remember John's gospel. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. You see, all, all of this teaching about redemption brings us back to Genesis and creation in the garden because that's what God's doing. You might drive around Santa Fe and see stuff you don't like. Bad drivers, flashing lights, and that's the tip of the iceberg. But do you understand that what God is doing through Jesus, by the Spirit, through his church, through you, is literally bringing people back to the garden? Because the, the juju of dualism, of always wondering if the gods are going to be angry, and I give and they take, that's nothing but a wasteland. The garden of Jesus is ours. Because all thrones and dominions and powers and principalities and slave masters have been rendered mute. Everything is for him. And he's the head of his body, the church. So again, it's not just some detached sense of the kingship of Jesus. It's personal, it's near. It's a head with a mouth that not only knows you by name, but speaks your name. And all of this is possible because of the power of Christ, even under pressure. Even under pressure. And so it's as if Paul is inviting us and the Colossians to say, you know what? I'll sing to that. Sing his power. But there's more. We're also to sing the very purpose of God through Christ. Sing the purpose of Jesus for his glory and for our joy. We sing his power, but we also sing his purpose. We need more than Jesus as hero. We need Jesus as helper. He's not only full of power, but he's full of grace. What would happen if we lived like this church? If we operated just a little bit more like a really good gospel-centered recovery group? A little bit more like a hospital and a little bit less like a glee club, country club, whatnot. If we were a little less quick to judge one another in our need, in our brokenness, 
quicker to be more vulnerable because Christ himself was vulnerable for us. Jesus isn't only full of power, but he's full of grace. Don't we know that we need that? Isn't this what the world needs? So often when I'm talking to good friends of mine who are agnostic or atheist, and some of them, by the way, are philosophers and they're way smarter than I am, so it's not an intellectual thing at all. We, we often land upon this false dichotomy. Either God is all-powerful or he's all-good, but you can't have it both ways. To that, God says, no, look at my son. Look at my son, because we need a powerful God, right? We don't just want Zeus slash Iron Man, Spider-Man, or take your pick up there, you know, brushing their teeth in the morning and saying, well, are there any daughters of men that I find appealing today? We need a powerful God, but we want a loving God because we know that our hearts are made for worship and love and affection. We know that we were made, as C.S. Lewis says, we have this faint memory of the garden. What would it have been to be fully known, naked and not ashamed, fully known and fully loved? And we are constantly in an attempt to recapture that. Unfortunately, we often go to broken cisterns, empty wells, coping mechanisms that do not satisfy, but that's what we long for, to be fully known and fully loved. And the Bible says, if you want that, it's yours, but you have to be rescued. You have to be rescued because the problem isn't you don't have enough money, you don't have enough education, you need behavior modification. Look, the 20th century was one of the bloodiest centuries in human history. We have more money, more education, less people in poverty, and everything else. Those aren't bad things, but they don't solve the ultimate thing. I mean, even the rich are alienated. I remember growing up and hearing about the death of Chris Farley. You guys remember Chris Farley? He was amazing. I know you all had your people too in your generation, Steve Martin and whatnot, but sorry, Chris Farley, Nirvana. I mean, that was peak America right there. And I remember about Chris Farley taking his own life and, you know, reading a little bit about how comics are often, you know, full of sadness and depression deep down. And, but just thinking to myself, this guy had it all. He was so loved. He was hilarious. I'm sure he had no lack of financial resources to procure for himself whatever pleasures he so desired. And yet even that wasn't enough. Alienation. The problem is Sin, that we've chosen to be our own gods, and so we've broken relationship with God. We're separated from God. That's why we're separated from one another. And yet we know deep down that we were not made only by God to sing his power, but for God to sing his purpose. That our hearts were made to praise and worship him. That our affections were made to move toward him. That our trucks were made to ban the sticker, Tengo Novia. St. Augustine puts it this way, and I paraphrase badly. But our hearts are restless, forever restless, until they find rest in him. Now, Rome tried to counter this, of course, with uh, building roads, systems, structures, order, and the proliferation of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. But if you had asked the Jews 
of Jerusalem or the Christians of Colossae, how peaceful that peace really was, you would have gotten quite an answer. For the Jews considered themselves to be in a new Babylonian exile under Roman slavery, and the Christians went to both cross and Colosseum if they refused to worship the emperor as the king of kings and the lord of lords. The Pax Romana was temporary, for the empire has been wiped off the map, and it was really no peace at all while it existed, except for one that perpetuated the power of the Roman oligarchy. It was held by compulsion, not peace by the blood of the cross, but peace by the blood of the sword. And into that world breaks Jesus and the cross and the resurrection and the blood of Christ. Jesus in his costly sacrifice is then able to embrace the alienated and the lonely by blood for a price must be paid for sin and by the cross for cursed is a man who hangs on the tree. He bears the curse of the first Adam so that as the second Adam, he can rise from the dead. He does all of this to recounsel or reconcile the lost and the lonely and the alienated and the broken to something so much more beautiful. Inclusion and embrace, fully known and fully loved. Brothers and sisters, this message of reconciliation is but a feeble attempt at creating a new law of social justice if it is detached from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only in Jesus can we stick together even though we have many things not in common. Reconciliation is the need of the hour, socioeconomically, racially, in our own families. But what can undo the sinful scattering of Babel but the blood of Jesus? I feel so torn by this, don't you? I was talking to Violet yesterday in the car, my eight-year-old. And I went on to one of my dad lecture rants about different forms of government. Thank God they've seen the show Hamilton, so I have like something to hang on to. But we were talking a little bit about the U.S. We were talking about China. In fact, we were talking about the flashing lights at the Capitol and saying, well, you know, that does feel a little bit weird, but thank God, you know, we, we actually have the freedom of speech here. And the government doesn't exist to give us our freedoms, but to protect our freedoms. Anyway, we're having this conversation, and then we're talking about China. And Violet says, and I know China, just saying that word, some of you are super triggered right now, so get ready for all this. She goes, well, is China a bad country? Is it bad? Kind of stopped me in my tracks. I was like, well, you know, theoretically, from a standpoint of political philosophy, like I, I prefer our system on paper over theirs. But I said, Violet, and it struck me, it hit me, because I just saw this email update on the same day that we have brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ right now in China who love Jesus, who are being persecuted for their faith. They would never dream. They would never dream that they would have someone who loves Jesus in a position of power in their country, and yet the church marches on and flourishes, raid after raid, arrest after arrest, persecution ongoing. Just yesterday, an entire school Hundreds of children, raided, military police, no rights, no recourse, no courts. It is finished. You're done. 
And as we approach Monday, Martin Luther King Day, I want us to remember that that the dream of reconciliation is not dead, but it is not one that will be achieved by thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, but by and in Christ alone. What does this mean for us, you guys? It means that God's wrath is appeased. God's wrath upon our sin, which is just and deserved, means that our consequence is taken. It means more than that. Sin's power is canceled. John said something in our prayer meeting this week that I loved. He said, if the cross of Christ is true, if peace doesn't come from Rome, but from Jesus, then there is not a drop of God's wrath left for any of you who put your faith in Christ. So not not only is God about the plan of reconciling the world, he's doing it by reminding us that he has first reconciled us to himself. We were dead in our sins and trespasses and he raised us up from the dead. If that's true, we of all people should be the most humble. We can have our political philosophies. Don't mishear me. I'd love to go out for coffee and talk about that for hours. I will put you to sleep. And we should have strong opinions and views on those things. We should give God thanks and glory for the country we were all born into because you obviously chose to be born here. But at the same time, let us not remember that right now we have family. You have family that are Chinese and Indian and Central and South America and African. They are your family. And they are being hauled out of their church right now in chains. Right now. Is the air condition good enough for all of us right now? Is the coffee warm enough this morning? Lord, have mercy. And that's why we are to sing his purpose. Because if it is true, then there is not a drop of wrath left. Lastly, we sing his persistence. Jesus will finish what he started in you. So it is Jesus who justifies. In fact, he is both just and justifier. And Jesus who sanctifies, sets apart, makes holy. Here's what this means for you. It means you have ongoing security in his love. So we sing of his power, conquers the fickle gods. We don't need the angel hierarchy. We sing of his purpose as redeemer and savior. But we never leave the gospel. You don't graduate if you're a Christian. You know, we did the gospel ABCs in first grade. But now I'm in graduate school. Well, if you're in graduate school, then go serve in the youth, clean toilets, and be the most humble person. Because that's graduating in Jesus. We never get off the gospel. And all the power of Jesus and all the purpose of Jesus is meant to present you blameless. It means that there is ongoing security for you in his love, just as when you first believed it. Does that mean a perfect life? Well, I mean, aside from my life, no. Ask my wife. No perfect life, but a beautiful life in Jesus. A transformed and transforming life in Jesus, which means we never stop receiving grace, repenting of the false fickle gods, and repeating that cycle in public. That's why the hymn makes sense. That's why Paul didn't move from prayer to some, you know, logical treaties of systematic theology, but to a hymn of praise. Because what Paul wants to do isn't just stir up our works, but our worship. How do people change? 
It's not by the law. It's by grace. It's grace that motivates our change, grace that sustains our change, and grace that brings us back to Jesus again as we struggle to change. I mean, it's right there in verse 23. Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith. It almost sounds conditional until you read it in the Greek. And what you realize in the Greek construction there are the verbs that Paul isn't making it conditional but expected. We are saved by faith alone. And yet the faith that saves is never alone. It's as if Paul is saying, Jesus is persistent for you. Now go and do likewise. Not because you have to, but because his love is so good that you want to. So I end with a question. We began with a statement. Tengo novia. I end with a question. Tienes novia. Do you have a girlfriend? And no, I don't mean Jesus is your boyfriend. What I mean is, jokes aside, have you been captivated in your heart and your affections by one who is so glorious, so supreme, so preeminent, so beautiful that you don't have to love him, but you can't help but love him because of how he has loved you. And only then will we sing his power, will we sing his purpose. In the ups and downs stock market of our life, will we sing his persistence. Only then will the folks around us who see our truck drive by know that we are taken. Let us be those who wear the badge of Christ without shame. Let us be those who cruise the streets of Santa Fe with the sound turned up because this is the greatest song in the world. It's the song that our God has given us to sing because it's the song that Jesus himself by his death and his resurrection, sings over us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word in Colossians. I feel a little fired up today, but it's just because there's so much here. And, And it's a hymn, it's a worship song. Lord, so forgive me if there's been a little too much vocal modulation or speed of speech. I... I just pray that you would communicate these beautiful truths to our heart by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I I know I can hardly remember my sermons after I preach them. I certainly don't expect more than that from these beautiful people that I call my family in this church. So would you make these words rock solid? Would you drill them down as we come to your table? Lord Jesus, we come to your table where your power and your purpose and indeed your persistence are on full display. You are powerful enough to lay down your life because no one takes it from you and you will take it up again. Your purpose is to be sung about here because you are the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world so that we no no longer live in alienation and fear of the fickle gods, but secure and grounded in your power, and your love. And we come to do it every week to be reminded that the most constant and persistent thing in our lives is your love and your grace for us. So meet us here at this table. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.